This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Ned Group Investments Insights webinar. I'm Karnet Richards, and I am delighted to be joined by Thanos Papasavas, who is the founder and CIO of ABP Invest. Thanos is a regular guest on the Bloomberg Market Update Show, and he consults to the large pension funds and family offices in the UK and Europe. Just a brief overview of Net Group Investments in terms of who we are. Our business started in 2003, and this is when we pioneered the best of breed investment philosophy in South Africa. This is where we partner with owner-managed boutique asset managers to manage investment mandates exclusively on behalf of our clients. We currently manage more than 350 billion rand of assets on behalf of our clients, and we've been recognized as the top offshore fund manager for five years in a row. We offer our clients a comprehensive and quality range of international investment strategies in the form of equities, multi-asset and specialist investment strategies and funds. One of which, the NetGroup Investments Global Emerging Markets Equity Fund, managed by NS Partners based in the UK, has outperformed the peer group by 3% per annum over the past decade, a phenomenal achievement. In South Africa, our flagship Net Group Investments Balance Fund has consistently delivered top quartile performance for our clients over one year, three year, five year, seven years, and since inception. Again, a phenomenal performance given the current market environment. Should you require further information about the, the Net Group Investment Funds, please contact your Net Group Investment Consultant. Lastly, in the spirit of transformation, diversity and inclusivity, I'm exceptionally proud that our business has been rated as a level one broad-based black economic empowerment contributor for two years in a row. A wonderful achievement for our business. On that note, I'm going to hand you over to Thanos, who will share his views with you this afternoon. And I urge you to please jot down your questions for Thanos in the Q&A panel on the right-hand side of your screen. Thanos, thank you so much for joining us and over to you. Juanit, thank you very much indeed. Nabila, it's a pleasure and delighted to be able to attend this event today. It could not have been more timely in terms of the developments over the last few weeks, in terms of the developments, if you like, over the last nine months since January and February of this year. What I would like to do is briefly touch upon the geopolitical market and economic developments which are impacting. There are always crises all the times for you who have been involved in the financial markets over the last few decades. There hasn't been a single year without some type of crisis, which always keeps things interesting, certainly in what we do, and, and sort of try to interpret what those geopolitical developments mean for the underlying economic and market analysis. So what I would like to kick off first is talk about COVID-19 and geopolitics, 
Then we'll move on to the second chapter, if you like, the impact this is having in economics. And then finally, try to understand what does this now mean for markets, broad equity, fixed income, currency and commodity markets. So let's kick off with COVID-19 and geopolitics. And if you like, COVID-19 has not only impacted geopolitics, but also socio-political influences as well. We're all aware of the weekly COVID-19 cases, the impact of the significant second round effect which has been taking place. And if we look at the World Health Organization database, which is here with little links for whoever's interested for further research at the bottom hand side, if you break that down by region, there are really two areas which stand out quite negatively. One of them by far, and that is Europe. We can see here the number of deaths versus the number of cases compared to the first round, so it's significant impact and hence why countries such as Germany, France, UK, Spain have really reenacted the lockdown. Americas has also done, has increased, but not as much. Uh, the increase here is relatively less because we also include the Southern Hemisphere, the Southern, uh, Southern America, which has summer. And similarly to, to Africa, we've had a significant improvement in terms of the comparisons on Africa to the previous round and also an improvement in Southeast Asia. Also, if one is looking at the breakdown by age, cases and deaths, it is, you know, we, we've all been teenagers, we've all been sort of young 20 year old somethings. It is very difficult to keep those guys and ladies in the house. They tend to be the, the age distribution which tends to deviate most, if you like, and they've had the largest, highest level of impact. Luckily, they're not the ones which have been hit the most, so hence the result as more, more sort of positive for their age distribution, but it still impacts the overall population. So clearly it is difficult for that age group, and I think it's something we broadly need to, to, need to understand and find ways of communicating that message. But COVID's impact, it's not just the inequality in terms of race, and the types of jobs that different race groups have been involved in, whether it's in the US, whether it's in the UK or even France. But also we can see a very direct impact in terms of inequality with education on the left hand side, which shows that some of the industries such as finance, education, business services, you can tend to work from home as we are doing right now, but those jobs tend to have higher levels of, of expected tertiary education. In other words, a degree, a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, senior schooling. So the better educated you are, the more likely you'll be able to work from home and as a result be less impacted by COVID. On the right hand side, I think it is a fascinating little analysis which was initially conducted by The Economist and this shows in the US students performance by the household income and it shows that before the first lockdown, students were neither here nor there, broadly similar, irrespective of the background household income, they did more or less the same. After, however, lockdown, you can see that students which came from a higher income had better results in their exams and students which came from a poor household income did worse. Why? Partly because of the schooling, which means that the schools at those from a higher level could attend schools with better IT technology, more sort of involved, engaged teachers. But it's also the other point that those who are from a better household, their parents also tended to be working from home and help them. So we are seeing here some impacts, which is COVID is having far beyond a race and it's going to be significantly impacting society. The way COVID also impacted society 
directly is in the US elections. I'm sure we've all been focusing over the last few weeks as to what's happened. The gentleman here is Louis DeJoy. He's the gentleman who Trump put in place to be responsible for the post office in the US, the postmaster general. And there was a very significant impact where Democrats were more likely to vote by mail as opposed to the Republicans. So there were some key debates and discussions taking on place and the impact that had had, if you like, turned the race from a Republican surprise in the early of the night to the eventual Democrat win with the late postal votes coming due. But let's take now with the US. Let's talk about Trump. Let's talk about Biden. What does this mean for the US policy? And then move on to Brexit, Russia, Middle East. First of all, I think Trump did much better than expected. My view was that he is going to win in terms of managing to get very close and pushing it for the Supreme Court. However, we have had such a big diversity across the various states. It wasn't just one state to fight. And I believe that this is very unlikely now, especially as not only foreign leaders have congratulated President-elect Biden, but also previous Republican President George W. Bush. But getting back to this slide, I think this is interesting because it shows that in red, we have Trump and George W. Bush and their support from Republicans. And you can see that the Republicans had very high votes and numbers for their president, close to 90, 92%. Whereas Democrats, their approval ratings for Obama and Clinton were a little bit less. Why is that important? It's important because it shows that on the day, the Republicans fall in line, they go out and vote. Whereas Democrats, they have to fall in love. And it's very important to ensure that the Democrats, which is a diverse party of, of ideologies, socioeconomic backgrounds, need to find someone to aspire to in order to go out and vote. So I think Trump did much better than, than, than expected. Where are we now? This is where we are in terms of the presidential elections. This has been decided with, no doubt, a sort of new history which has been made with Kamala for the first woman, a non-white African-American woman, hash, also Indian, to, to be able to take on this important role. However, this is not it yet. Although the presidential race has, has, has been sort of decided, if you like, that's not the case with the Senate. And, and the reason for that is a very archaic sort of law which relates to Georgia, where if no particular candidate gets over 50% of the vote, then there's a runoff. So there's another attempt with just two candidates this time around. And this runoff is going to take place on the 5th of January, 2021. And only then will we decide, will we be able to see who is controlling the Senate. So what happens is that if, for example, should Republicans win the Senate, then we'll have, if you like, there's going to be a more of a centrist policy being pursued because on the one side, Biden will have the White House and the House of Representatives, but not the Senate. So there will be some checks and balances in terms of the left and the right side of the parties. If, however, the Democrats win Georgia, and the way they would do that is that if it's a 50-50 split in terms of the votes, the vice president, Kamala, has the casting vote in the Senate. So she will be able to vote Democrat side. And as a result, that's when the blue wave would take place, which means that the Democrats would hold the White House and both houses of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And if that were to take place, then we can see a significant impact in terms of the Democrats potentially shifting from the center to the left. 
And, and the big question in terms of financial markets will be, how left are they likely to go? And could it be sort of unnerving for the US economy and broader industrial policy? So the significant impact which could be in place, and we won't have a clarity on that until the 5th of January, is the questions on the infrastructure bill. How much money are they looking to, to raise? The healthcare reforms domestically, in terms of the Medicaid, Medicare, environmental laws, the climate change, corporation taxes, are they going to be increasing taxes by how much? And of course, any any industrial issues with, with Silicon Valley. These will be mute point if, if Georgia falls to the Republicans. If, however, they it, it does go to the Democrats, then this, all of this is going to be up for grabs and the party itself will be infighting to see how much to the left or to the center they, they remain. Key, however, for the Biden administration is going to be the first 100 days from the 20th of Jan until the 29th of April. There's a number of items that they need to deal with, not only social health, but also economic, industrial policy, foreign policy. And, and there are a, sort of a, a set of relatively low hanging fruits, if you like. Obviously, he's got the task force to battle in terms of COVID-19. Uh, he will re-enter the Paris Climate Accord, reverse the WHO, the departure, the, the process of leaving the WHO, be potentially resetting the path to US citizenship for dreamers, uh, reversing Trump's travel ban from Muslim countries. So these are relatively less contentious issues. The more contentious issues will involve, obviously, the choice of Treasury Secretary, Secretary of State, but also Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commissioner. These are the people who will be impacting not only the economic policy, but the industrial policy. And in terms of the foreign policy on the bottom hand side, there are a number of, of areas there to, to discuss on. Number one, is are they going to come back into the Iranian deal? I think they will. They'll go back into the Iranian nuclear deal of the P5 permanent five members plus one. And they need to do that pretty quickly because Iran is having their own elections in June. And unless the moderates show some progress with the US administration, then Iran could be lost to the hardliner. So that is a relatively easy win that Biden needs to address. In terms of China, I don't think the tensions are going to change that much. The tone will change more collegiate, more encompassing, warmer, softer, but the underlying message will not. Uh, there are key structural differences in play and the US people are aligned in that, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. So I think Biden is looking to combine the, the, the trade, the uh, climate change and technology into one. In terms of EU, I think the relationships again will warm up, but I don't see sort of any big change. I think the EU will need to stand on its own two feet. And in terms of the UK, I think that's, if anything, the UK is going to lose out on a special relationship there. I think that the, the personal relations between Biden and Boris is not going to be very warm, given that Boris, as far as Biden is concerned, is a sort of a Trump the junior or a Trump version. But also the impact of Brexit and the potential risk this may have in, in Biden's perception and also Nancy Pelosi's on the Good Friday Agreement. So I expect UK tensions, US tensions to be a little bit more difficult. What does that mean? In my view, that means that Brexit will be done. I think that Boris miscalculated the US. They did not expect for this in in the internal markets bill to have that adverse impact in the US administration. So I think they'll be sort of, if, if you like, put in a corner and they will find a skeleton deal to be agreed with. What happens if it doesn't? I don't think it's a worst case scenario. I think the worst case scenario is the prolonged uncertainty we have had for the last four years. Whether there is a deal or there is not a deal, it's better than more uncertainty. If there is a deal, that's great. If there is no deal, then they'll just go back and reconsider and readjust positions. 
Impact on cable, maybe we'll drop from 132 to 124, but nothing significant below that. Moving on from the UK now to what is, I think, the pivot in the US's new administration, in my view, and that's the EU, that's Europe. So within Europe, the big question is, is it going to be Macron? Is it going to be Merkel? I think we could be seeing a pivot towards Macron and France. Merkel is not going to be here for long. She's done, in my view, a fantastic job over the last sort of nearly 16 years in keeping the Europe together. But this time around, we've had a crisis which, in my view, brought the EU together. And to quote Churchill, never let a good crisis go to waste. And it has been the geopolitics and the economics driven by COVID put together the next generation EU, or if you like, some new fiscal union or movements towards a closer fiscal union. And the EU has a single currency, has the same monetary policy, but not the same fiscal policy. And I think we're moving gradually towards that, albeit with some questions from the frugal four, rightly questioning, are we just throwing the money for the Southern European states to sort of plant them in ad hoc projects? So I think it's good to have checks and balances, but at the same time, it is more expensive to break up the project than it is to continue and put it in a stronger position. So. Is this the beginning or the end or the end of the beginning? I think this is the, the end of the beginning. I think the EU and Europe is moving towards a second stage. I think the tensions with the US and the departure of UK are maturing the EU. I think it has to raise its hand out of the sand, realize that it needs to be able to take its own decisions, have its own policies with China and also with Russia and bring some strong leadership with, in this case, there's opportunity for Macron to do that. Where does that leave Russia and Belarus? Now, in my view, and, and this is a bit of a contentious issue, but in my view, the, the whole story with Ukraine was a mistake by the EU and NATO. They just sailed too close to the wind. They reached out to parts of what was a very strong sphere of influence of the USSR and Russia, and sort of dangling a big carrot in front of the Ukraine saying, come over, come over to the West, come over to the EU. The EU could not afford that. They were in the middle of the Eurozone crisis at the time. The NATO didn't, would not be able to do that. Russia would never accept having sort of US army bases in Sevastopol. So I think that was a mistake. And it sort of the consequences of that was the split of Ukraine. And hence tensions also for Russia, sanctions also for Russia. So I think this time around with Belarus, both entities are taking it easier. I think the EU and NATO are less aggressive in sort of promoting and bringing Belarus closer to the West. And at the same time, I think Putin is exercising some more quiet action. So in that sense, I believe that Russia is exerting a slightly stronger soft power. Russia is also being involved more in the Middle East. And contrary to what market expectations are, I think Russia is going to come closer to the EU. And the one thing I'd like to see is what the relationship between Biden and Putin is going to be. I just don't think it's going to be that negative, or at least I think it's going to be slightly more positive than what the markets think. Putin's a smart guy, and I don't think he would want to close that door and probably want to be a little bit more constructive around it. Finally, game changer for the Middle East. I think that uh, Trump, like him or loathe him, he did pull this out of the uh, out of the hat. In fact, it was not Trump. Obviously, it was uh, Jared Kushner. His Jewish background, family have been very close friends with the Netanyahu's. There was an element of trust which was built there and helped sort of create that level of, of negotiations and discussions. The two guys who who lost out of that, Turkey has been losing out of that, and they're dislike the deal. But the key guys who've lost out are the Palestinians who really need to go out and sort of re 
readdress re, re what are the structural issues? Where, where does the Palestine health stand on this and what is their line to take? This is certainly some homework that the, the Palestinians have to have to take, but certainly a game changer for the Middle East, which is helping the, the Arabs, the Israelis, but also the US in terms of sales of trade and army. That's the oh, I didn't mention I didn't mention China specifically because I'll address it on the economic side. But Kuwani, do we have any questions on the geopolitical side or any clarity, if you like? Yes, Thomas, just one question. The role of Europe and the US, NATO, with resolving the issues in Syria and the ongoing battles in the Middle East and the wars in Yemen. Do you think that there will be a more cohesive pressure on Syria now? I don't. Those I don't think the US is going to turn back to what it used to be. I really don't. I do believe that the, the US turnaround is real. The pivot, if you like, of the US, if anything, is in Asia. That was instigated, I remember, back in November of 11. I think it was November 11 by Obama, also written, I think it was November 11, also written in the foreign policy press by uh, Clinton, Hillary Clinton at the time. So. I think pivot, as far as the US is concerned, it's Asia. It is not the Middle East. But generally, I don't see a re-emergence of the US becoming the hegemon. I think we are starting to see we're moving away from the sort of unipolar world to multipolar world. And if you like, this is going to be an ongoing discussion over the next few years. It's not just the US. It's going to be the US. It's going to be China. It's going to be the EU, which is learning to deal with itself. It's going to be Russia. And Russia has been taking a more active role in the Middle East. Fantastic. Thanos, one more question. Since Donald Trump was elected US president, you've seen the rise of conservative parties around the world, in South America, Europe, and this growing sort of support for them in governments and countries. Do you think with, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris now leading the US, call it the, the largest democracy, sort of yep. economy in the world, that you'll see less of this conservative rhetoric being thrown around in the world. I think, Hanit, I think that's probably the more the most important question of, of all the questions I think we're going to have today. And I think this is because Biden and Kamala have an opportunity over the next four years to, to bring together the US nation. And if they bring together the US nation, it will be a sign that the left-leaning policies come back in vogue, they can readdress structural issues, they can readdress the inequalities which were driven after the global financial crisis, right? Because there were inequalities, they were real. I think they would be, they would be a very big mistake, in my view, if they were to win the Senate in January and they moved the agenda very far to the left on the progressive side. I think if the progressive Democrats won the debate internally and shifted policy far left, then I think this is just going to re-accelerate the bipartisans and I would see Trump coming back in again in 2024 and this re-engagement sort of, re of, of social unrest coming back through. So to answer your question, if the Democrats maintain a more of a centrist policy, then I do see social cohesion around the world coming back from the populace, like we saw in Greece after Tsipras, or in Podemos in Spain. 
So it's very much up to the Democrats to take that to decide that question. And I think it's the most important question of all. Thank you, Thanos. One more question that's come through. Of course. What does Biden mean for Turkey and its attempt to expand its influence in the Mediterranean? And will Turkey stay in NATO? If not, what are the implications? Yeah, wow. Wow, that's, that's, uh, thanks guys. Great questions there, <laughs> pretty tough questions. Okay, I think Turkey, Turkey is a very unfortunate situation. Uh, we've been negative the Turkish lira for over two years because it's because of President Erdogan's unorthodox macrodential policies, the lack of central bank independence and the geopolitical isolation they've had. They basically, the, I don't know why, but Erdogan has isolated himself with the US, with Russia, with the EU, with the Middle East, with everyone. And we've had, we've seen the consequences. Now, I believe that NATO is a sort of, I, I believe that, that Turkey won't leave NATO. I believe that Turkey will sort of find the, or, or at least Biden being a consensus personality. Biden has a lot of experience from foreign relations. He was also VP under Obama. He also knows, worked with Xi Jinping for a number of years, so he knows foreign policy. And being a consensus builder, I would like to believe that he, he will open arms to renegotiate, rediscuss the situation with Turkey. He will not let Turkey and the Eastern Middle Mediterranean deal with itself. So in that sense, I'm more optimistic, and I do hope that there is a solution which is found because not, not only it's positive for, for Turkey and Greece and Eastern Mediterranean, but broadly also for the, for the European Union. Because if for whatever reason Turkey is pushed out and they open the gates to refugees, then it puts a risk again, the European Union project with potential increases in parties such as AFD in Germany. But I do hope there's going to be some resolution with Turkey and it will not leave NATO. Fantastic, Thanos. Thank but you. Top questions. Top questions. Thank you, Juanit. So now let's talk a little bit about economics. I'm not going to surprise you anything here. You've already know a lot of the stuff. I'm just going to say that I don't believe in we're in the eye of the storm. For those of you who don't know this, this is from Bloomberg. It basically shows the sentiment surveys. And, and again, links here for whoever's interested. You can see April and May, the dark means that it's deteriorating. The sentiment was doom and gloom after COVID, as we'd expect. Since then, things have improved. What I mean by I don't think we're in the eye of the storm is that I do not expect this dark maroon and brown and red to reappear after the second wave. Why? Because we have had unprecedented support, fiscally and monetary. And this is just the this is just the support over the first couple of months. Just to put it into perspective, if we look at, for example, the global financial crisis, three years, the total fiscal stimulus was about $4 trillion. If we add just a couple of months for COVID-19, it's double that. The level of monetary sort of stimulus in terms of the central banks has been unprecedented. So policymakers are not going to allow this to turn back into red. Why? It's not about the economic orthodoxy. That's secondary. It's because they want to ensure social cohesion. Because if we have huge unemployment, depression, social unrest, the cost of managing that is far worse than just dealing with another sort of 10, 20% levels of debt to GDP or the fiscal deficit moving sort of from 5% to 9% or 10%. We can deal with that. We know how to deal with that. It may take a little bit of time, but we know how to deal with it. We do not know how to deal with a breakup of society, which is nearly what happened during the global financial crisis. And the other thing I'd like to say 
is that SMEs, which are the small medium enterprises, they make up the backbone of the economy. So again, why the stimulus is significant in the major economies, certainly in the EU, in UK and the US. Some of the countries have been badly hit, obviously, as you know, Spain and Italy specifically, and we all know the sort of the, the sectors which have been hit the most. Looking at the economic forecasts from the major institutions, what I have here for you guys to peruse later, on the bottom side, I have the first initial forecast which came out. So this is 14th of April, IMF, May, June, and so on and so forth for 2020 and 2021. And then I've up updated them with the latest forecast of the same institution. So we see here the latest one, IMF, in, in October of, of 2010, the forecast for 2020, for example, USA expected down 4.3%, whereas, for example, last year, they were expecting 5.9 immediately. So US is doing better than expected. Germany is doing better than expected. China, definitely positive. 2% for this year, back to 8% next year. Any any questions on the on the economics, guys, before I shift on to markets? I haven't said anything sort of out of the ordinary, so I wouldn't expect any any questions. If there are none, I can move on to markets. Is that okay, Juanit? That's okay. That's fine. Yeah, that's okay. that's fine. That's in order. Thank you. Excellent. So now, so what does this mean? We've got the geopolitics, we've got the economics. Let's try and bring them all in place. And we there are five themes. There are five themes we're thinking of, and these have not changed since the change in the US administration. Number one, we see a stronger Europe. By necessity, the EU basically had a hard awakening when, with the way that the US, with the way that Trump dealt with the multilateral relations, with the way that Trump dealt with Europe, with Angela Merkel, that was a wake-up call. Things are never going to be the same. Things are changing. And you can't really rely on old relationships with these structural changes. So I think it's forcing Europe to stand on its own to feed. We discussed that earlier. I think it also means that COVID, with the impact of national champions, the fact that there were supply chains all the way out in China, Cambodia, Vietnam, are coming back to home, stronger Europe, bringing everything closer together, number one. Number two, receding globalization. And I mentioned that was my view before Trump, and it's also post-Trump. I'm not saying globalization is going to stop, no, but I think we're not going to go back to the pre-GFC world where everything was open. Tensions will remain. Discussions, debates will continue. Tariffs may continue, even now with Boeing and Airbus. So I think we are seeing receding globalization. And adding to that, a theme which is gradually developing in our mind and will be expanding more, is that multipolar world, which we need to address. Third is strong China. Key here is that the Chinese party, the Chinese Communist Party wants to stay in power. And they know that in order to do that, they need to maintain growth and social cohesion. Given that an engine of growth they're exporting to the US, to the West, is closed or closing or reduced, they need to diversify internally. And hence the focus is on domestic demand, whether it's moving from rural to urban, whether it's sort of moving from growing up the middle classes, they will deal with that situation and maintain those levels of growth. And if you like, China has become the sort of the, the new Washington consensus or the more strict policy measures enacted with less fiscal policy being thrown in or easier monetary policy. The fourth is inflation. And some of you 
will probably say, I'm sure half of you will probably say, nah, inflation, that's never going to happen. We had the same story again during the GFC. It never happened. Other, the other half of you will probably agree with me. So this is very much a split issue in, in half. I fall on the side that inflation will come through. Why? Number one, I think that globalization is receding and prices will continue to rise in terms of trade tensions and tariffs. Secondly, if you like, the magnitude of the policy stimulus which has come through is so much larger than anything we've seen before that it will have an impact on the economies. Also, the way that the money has been thrown towards the economy is very different than it was during the global financial crisis, where it was only for a handful select of systemic institutions and banks. Now it's very widespread. And last but not least, central banks want some inflation and they're actually focusing on ways to get it, like the Fed moving away to sort of an average target and potentially the ECB moving to the same. And as a result, this, as you can imagine, paints my views in terms of interest rates, but also opportunities in real assets, commodities, real estate. And ESG, last but not least, ESG has shifted. ESG a few years ago was just a marketing gimmick, sort of the active managers who basically had lost part of their market share to the passive guys thought, oh, wow, ESG, let's raise some assets, let's put up, put up some fees. I think this has changed. Asset managers have been taking this very seriously. It sort of transformed itself from a gimmick to a, a product and now a process. And this is very much part and parcel of processes. And they can see that, that it's adding value to the end company and to the underlying fund as well. So this is great, not only for the asset management community, but also for the community and, and the world at large. So moving now specifically to some of the examples within Europe, we've been positive Europe, but we, we tend to like Germany more. And this is, I say more until recently, this is very much a hot topic internally we're having, whether this is still the case, with Biden potentially pivoting to Paris and Macron, does this mean that France will now have a competitive advantage geopolitically? And we're assessing this as we speak over the next few days. But so far, we've been more positive Germany and represented that sort of a DAX versus Cacaron. We also need to be aware that we have very important elections coming up in Germany next September, October. And who's going to be replacing Merkel? It is going to be a coalition. But could Olaf Scholz, the current finance minister, and SPD likely to win? Especially going back to the question you had, Kwanit, if the Democrats prove to be a market-friendly party following early this year, this could throw the SPD into the limelight as a potential similar development in Germany. China, as I mentioned, positive China in terms of the outlook. We've been positive Chinese equities. We're also positive Korean equities for the same underlying story, also positive Australia. So we see Chinese economy continuing to grow. We see valuations still quite a, a, attractive. And although tensions will remain, and I think this is important, the tone of the discussions is going to be much more constructive than it was, or at least more expected than what it used to be under Trump. In terms of interest rates, as you can expect, because of our inflation view, we're negative US 10 years. We expect the steepness of the curve to continue. I think the 10 years are very expensive where they are, the steepness to continue. In terms of credit markets within fixed income, we like high yield. We avoided high yield in 2019. We thought it was too expensive. And we entered high yield in terms of our view in March uh, during the spike. Sometimes it's lucky, sometimes it's good to be lucky. Sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not. This was one of the lucky ones. Turned positive just at the crisis in March before the Fed announced its support. The reason we like that is because we're going to be in a multi-year 
low yielding environment and high yield offer that support and we felt that policymakers will provide that support to to avoid economies from sort of spiraling down but although we like high yield we turned neutral emerging markets and i think this is important because i like emerging markets i like emerging markets on the equity side i think they're very cheap i like emerging market currencies broadly there's some we do like some we less like less but broadly emfx beta i like it em equity i like it but EM bonds, neutral. Why? Because it's the first crisis where emerging market central banks could actually cut interest rates. And we have therefore had emerging markets feeling a double whammy of cut interest rates from the major central banks and cut interest rates from the domestic emerging market central banks. And I fear that as the economy starts to reflate and strengthen, the central banks may be a little bit hesitant to take back the liquidity as quickly as they put it in. And as a result, inflation and higher yields. So I'm not negative emerging market debt, but I'd rather wait in order to go overweight. Positive commodities, again, the reflationary story, stimulus is there. Even with the impact of COVID, they'll just throw more money at the problem. And copper is a good example. If you like, we've been positive copper since May. We like the story with copper. We also like oil, but also copper is more directly an industrial metal, which tends to do well. And finally, just some thoughts on currencies before I, I pass on to, to Juanit. We're negative the dollar. We've not always been negative the dollar. We've not been a perennial sort of dollar bear. Not at all. We've been we were positive the dollar for two years until December a year ago because we felt that the economic, the U.S. interest rate differentials and economic differentials were going to be beneficial for the U.S. So we're positive dollar, but we went neutral last December and negative in March. We think that the dollar is expensive. We think that the policy makers in the U.S. will pursue, especially now, a weak dollar policy in order to help trade, but also help bring inflation a little bit higher in the U.S. and a strong reflationary global environment is positive for the other currencies and negative for the US. So we maintain a negative dollar policy. We're positive for the euro, positive for the renminbi. Again, we've not been a perennial positive euro. We were negative the euro for the same opposite reasons I mentioned on the dollar, but we turned positive in March, partly because we feel that there is a structural as well as a cyclical opportunity here for Europe, but mostly it's a structural opportunity. On the renminbi, Although we were positive China equities, positive economic growth in China, we missed the currency. I would have wanted to be positive renminbi from, from the level of seven. We were trying to be too smart. We, we were neutral the renminbi until sort of a couple of weeks ago because I thought that the policymakers were going to use it as a negotiating tool and keep the currency cheap. So we, we basically threw the towel in because we feel that the renminbi is cheap from a long-term perspective, and it only makes up 2% of reserve holdings around the world in terms of central bank reserves or, or sovereign central bank holdings. And we believe that there's a, an increased likelihood of the renminbi increasing that level to something more reasonable and appropriate. I don't think the dollar is at risk of losing its reserve status. I don't believe that's the, the, the case, but still we do see the reserve holdings for renminbi increasing significantly. And last but not least on Mexican peso, one of the currencies that we're positive, we've maintained the positive Mexican peso throughout the crisis. Why? Slightly strange reason. I like the president, not on a personal basis. I like the fact that he's a left-leaning president, a populist, and I believe that left-leaning presidents or left-leaning administrators who have a conservative economic outlook do make change. And we saw that in Germany, 
if you remember, Gerhard Schroeder really made the structural changes in Germany, which Merkel benefited from, but he lost the administration after one term. Tsipras in Greece made some real structural changes within Greece in order to accept those packages. A right-wing government would never be able to do that. You need a left-wing government to do that. The same in the UK with Tony Blair. So I like Mexico because of that, and, and it's been doing well. Also, from a globalization point of view, I think receding globalization will see benefit in Mexico being close to the US. On South African rant, we were negative the South African rant all the way from sort of 19, August 19 onwards. We thought it's, it, it was expensive. We didn't see any structural changes being enacted domestically. And when the crisis took place, back at sort of just near close to 19, we thought now that's fair value. That, that was fair value for the rand. We felt it was too much doom and gloom and we turned it to neutral. However, we have not turned positive the rand. And the reason we have not turned positive is because we haven't seen the domestic structural changes, whether it's sort of on the corruption side, the internal infighting, the issues with energy. Obviously the rand has rallied, but this is more of a beta run rather than an alpha run. It's more about the broader emerging market sentiment, a broader consensus rather than South African RAND itself. So we are observing it, but we're still maintaining a neutral outlook on the RAND for the time being. And I mentioned earlier, we we're negative on Turkey. We've reassessed that now to neutral, but hopefully things will turn around. Thank you very much, Juanit. Back to you for any, any questions. Thank you, Thanos. Yeah, we've got quite a few questions that's come through. The one being, China and other Asian countries will sign the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, on the 15th of November, which looks like a copy and paste of Barack Obama's TPP, which sought to isolate China. Instead, now both India and the US have been excluded. What will this mean for the US and the tariffs that Donald Trump implemented? And how will the US react to this under a Biden government? Yeah, well, I think that, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, I do believe that the tensions are going to remain. It's, it's not going to be an easy way around it, but it's going to be a constructive discussion, a constructive agreement. And if you like, that will maintain, or at least the, the debate is going to be very much on the issues around technology. How well will the US administration be able to negotiate with China in terms of technology? Because if the US does not give some room in terms of China, then what China will do is basically say, fine, in which case, forget the US, we are going to reinvent a process, a system which works with us and with our partners. And therefore, we're going to be in a world in five or 10 years time where we will have a, a sort of a, a, buy, a, a, a dual system, which is all it's going to do is increase costs, reduce productivities, and inefficiencies, similar to the sort of, for those of us who remember videos, the, the BIRA and the PALS. So I think it's Excellent. going to be similar to that. I do, I do think that uh, moving into a multipolar world, all of these sort of uh, trade negotiations are going to be very much up in open discussions. Next question, Thanos. How will high real yields in emerging markets impact inflation? And quite an interesting one. Why? the fear of inflation with so much negative yields, long-term debt globally. Yeah, okay, very good point. On the first point, I think we're going to be seeing, in, in my view, an er erosion of the real yield as inflation starts to come through. And that's why I'm a little bit hesitant and hence neutral. As, as you guys know, 
if you hold, if you're overweight, significantly overweight, and then it shifts and it starts moving higher, it's more difficult to unwind gradually the positions. I'd rather be a buyer on weakness rather than a seller on the, on the weakness. So I'm more conservative, more cautious, and I do believe that sort of these real yields will, will, will reduce. The second question, Kwanit, was in terms of the, the levels of debt. Why, why yeah, do we yeah, see inflation? Yeah, yeah. I think that the debate obviously we're having in, in, in internally and the 50% of you will be asking exactly that point. Why will inflation come through? Well, okay, let's, let's be clear, I think. I'm not calling for an inflationary crisis. No, I think we have the central bank and the credibility is there. So I'm not talking about inflation, sort of double digits inflation. The types of inflation I'm talking about, for example, in the US is between three and four percent between the US and the UK shifting higher towards four and five percent and Europe again between sort of three and four percent. The difference this time around is that inflation will not be just a blip with a correction lower. I think it's going to be sticky and persistent. So inflation, I think we're going to be moving towards a more inflationary prone environment rather than inflation came in year on year impact, it's gone and we'll go back to what it used to be before. I think this is changing. And as a result, I'd rather be looking for ways of diversifying or managing the risk of a portfolio, if you like, with real, real assets or commodities, uh, real estate, which tends to be, or infrastructure, which tends to be a little bit more inflation protected. Whereas, for example, inflation-linked bonds have quite a lot priced in and they're going to be quite expensive, especially if you're looking at it from, from a guilt's point of view. Fantastic, which leads into the next question. What's your view on gold at the moment? That's a sore point. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a sore point because we we missed gold, okay? Having said that, we we were I would have wanted to be negative gold, from about 1600. I wanted to be negative gold from 1600. The reason why we did not and we held on to a neutral outlook is because of our view on the steeper yield curve and inflation. So that's why we sort of um, felt that we were in two minds. So steep yield curve tends to be highly correlated with weaker gold. As we expected the yield curve to steepen, the price of gold should weaken. On the other side, of course, you have the risk of inflation. As inflation rises, then gold tends to be a hedge for that. So it was these two competing forces which kept us neutral on gold. Otherwise, I would have been short. Short, I would have been negative. So we missed this move on, on gold. We got it on copper, but we, we totally missed it on, on, on gold. And sort of that didn't answer the question. Sorry, Kwanit. So neutral. So I'm neutral. neutral again for the same reasons, because I expect the steepness of the yield curve to continue and inflation to sort of go higher. Now, if, if you were to put a gun to my head, I would say negative. Okay. One question, what happens to the dollar if US long-term real yields turn, turn positive? Good question. That will depend on how the equivalent real yields of the other countries relate. So in other words, if we see positive interest rate yields coming into the US, either in the shorter term, three months, which which we won't because we know that the Fed is not going to do anything, or in the, the longer end, the question will be, where will that real interest rate differential be versus the other major currencies? 
and the major other emerging market currencies. So I can't answer that question in isolation of the US. It'll have to do with how the others will be performing. And that in itself is only an interest rate, dif interest rate differential fa factor, which as we know in currencies, interest rate differentials are one part of the discussion, mm. but you also have valuations, which are still very expensive for the dollar, fundamentals, which will be impacting both economic and technical factors as well. The one area where our view on the dollar could be wrong, could be wrong, many reasons why it could be wrong, but one area where it could, it could be wrong in the near term is on any market volatility. Because as market volatility increases, assets tend to move to safe haven assets. And the dollar, the yen, the Swiss franc tend to be in the currency world, the safe assets. And in fact, we sent a note to our uh, clients, it was last week, I believe, when the S&P weakened by about two and a half, three percent, the euro didn't budge. And we sent a note out saying, guys, this is this is a perfect example where the S&P corrects by three percent during the day. The dollar does not rally. This means for me that it's forming a base for the euro. So we're starting or we expect to see the euro shifting higher from these levels towards sort of 120, 125 on the back of this sort of a more quiet market environment. Two more questions. Second last question. So we've seen how badly the Trump presidency handled the COVID virus. And the question relates to how many governments will COVID topple and where will it affect or change political trajectories? And if you look at the UK, if you look at how the Boris Johnson government is handling COVID, there's been a huge outcry. Do you see Governments changing because of. I think of COVID. that I think I believe that populist governments were badly hit because of COVID, because populist leaders such as Trump, such as Johnson, such as Bolsonaro in Brazil, are less likely to impose a particular will on the people because they're voted by the people. So they want to be with the masses, with the people. So populist governments have done have been hit badly by COVID. I don't believe that COVID now as we are is in itself going to be the trigger for pushing a government out, especially as in the UK, there's still, I think, four more years or three more years for an election. But it will certainly be one of the key factors in the discussions as and when the political parties are in pre-electioneering mode in terms of how the government dealt with it and the policies they, they pursued. So certainly COVID is going to be a, a big cross on, on, on Boris Johnson's agenda, similar to if he does not succeed in negotiating Brexit. I think that will also be held against him with the gen next general elections. Thomas, the questions are just seem to be coming in here while we talk. We're here, we're here until the evening. <laughs> so the, what's your forecast for cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? I what don't have... Sure. I don't have a view on, on Bitcoins and cryptocurrencies for, for the simple reason that I don't understand them. I can see how some investors do allocate some exposure of the portfolio to them. I do not or we do not follow that. We, we would not be putting that in terms of a theoretical portfolio. Simple for the, the simple reason that I don't understand the underlying fundamentals and what's driving them and also the sort of the, the, the inherent demand and supply issues. On the top of that, it's there can also be quite volatile, extremely volatile. So I can see the, the concept of, yeah, well, if they're volatile and they're not related with the others, they can bring in some diversification due to the negative correlation. I get that. 
and I can see why some people choose to have that as the, in their portfolios, but it's not something that I feel confident, comfortable, or something I've managed myself to be able to have a view, and hence we stay away from that. Then Thanos, we saw Pfizer come out last night. Uh, you saw the news announcement, announcement, and we saw markets rally. We saw technology stocks actually underperform with the Nasdaq underperforming the S&P and the Dow. Do you think that a vaccine could spark sort of the recovery in, in stock markets? And then on the opposite side, what would result in the bull market correcting? Okay, so just to set my my expectations here, I think it's great results and you know, my God, that'd be wonderful if this develops. My central case on this, and I hold on to it for now, is what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation said back in January or February of last of, of this year. They basically said that in a best case scenario, a vaccine usually takes between three and five years. Given that there's an unprecedented levels of push in terms of monetary availability on the one hand and global sort of alignment in terms of cooperation, it may stretch to about 18 months to bring us to September of next year. So for me, a central case of a vaccine being found and being able to sort of gradually being distributed is still a few quarters away. If, however, this is a pleasant best case scenario of some science coming through, then still it will have an impact, which is great, but still the way of distributing that, providing quantities, the priority as to where it's going to go, which part of the populations, it's still a logistical as well as a political and social I wouldn't say a nightmare because it's a good development, but it still creates issues. So I don't think that it will be automatically a turn on in terms of risk, pro risk, pro equities on the back of these expectations. It's a sign of relief. It means that any downside corrections may be well protected, not only on the back of continuing policy support, but the expectations that we can see some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of a medical research. So. To turn it around, I don't see this as a huge shift forward unless we see some clarity, but I certainly see it as a as a support on any further corrections lower. That's the first answer of your question. So your second part of your question in terms of where do I see markets correcting? Well, you know what? I thought markets are going to correct more than they did. I was wrong. I, I thought the S&P leading into the elections when the S&P was about 3,300, 3,400. I thought we're going to go down to 3,000. I thought we're going to see volatility on the back of this political instability and, and not much more than that, but a sort of a 10% correction and where value and support fiscally comes through. So I, I was wrong in that. It could still manifest itself if we do see, for example, the Senate being shifted to the Democrat side and a blue wave coming in and taking over the US administration. And especially if the US administration shifts to the progressives, as we said earlier, then under that scenario, I do expect potential correction in the in the equity markets because of the un uncertain policy responses that, that we could see. But I don't see anything imminent now which could see a significant correction. Excellent. Thomas, we close to the to to our time up. <laughs> One last question. You mentioned the multipolar world. What would you see as opportunities for South Africa in that environment? 
yeah. and our economy in this multipolar world? Totally. I think immense. First of all, because number one, we are in an area where you don't only have you don't only have to be aligned with one particular region, but you can be well diversified. And the links with China, with Europe, uh, with the UK, and gradually with the US are going to be very positive. In my view, what, and again, my God, I don't want to be sound like sort of a preaching. It's not my role to do that. But it's the internal issues. The better that South Africa deals with its internal issues, then the more efficiency, productivity, competitiveness is going to come through. Because from a valuation point of view, very attractive in sort of the infrastructure, the know-how, the education, the awareness, the financial maturity, the way, for example, that you guys dealt with COVID. These are excellent examples of the progress on the opportunity set, but it needs to be done over a bedrock of stability and transparency. Once that's dealt with, you know, the, the, the sky's the limit, especially in a multipolar world. Fantastic. Thank you, Thanos. There aren't any further questions. On that note, I'd like to thank you, the, our audience, for dialing in today and listening to you, taking the time out in, late in the afternoon. So thank you very much for dialing in. Just to let you know that the video will be posted on our YouTube channel and we will be forwarding the, a copy of the video to you if you want to use them. We've had a number of clients unable to attend and they've requested the video recording. And also to let you know that you can follow us on LinkedIn for further insights that we post and fund updates and just to keep you abreast of what's happening at Netgroup Investments and the broader markets. So once again, thank you very much for dialing in. I appreciate your time. And Thanos, thank you very much for taking the time out to present to our clients today. I really appreciate it. Keep safe and stay healthy. Thank you. Netgroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Netgroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit netgroupinvestments.co.za.